I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And And we're we're a Tap Tap on the Wrist podcast. Every week we bring you a new history story with an alcohol twist. The stories you didn't learn from a textbook. In season one, we focused on dirty conspiracies, exciting adventures, and alcohol-fueled crimes throughout history. And for season two, we're focusing on Al Capone and the Chicago Beer Wars in a weekly conversation. We're so glad you found us. Grab a drink and come along for the ride. to another episode of A Tap on the Wrist. Yes, you've made it to episode 47. Yay! Yay! We're three episodes away from 50. That's an exciting milestone. I know. We, we were just talking about how we got to plan something. Something for it. Do you know what I think we should do? What? And I, we, this is the first time I'm running this by Vanessa. Oh boy. <laughs> what is it? I think we should do an episode of like, Questions Like, people can ask us questions, and we answer them. Ooh, that's fun. Like a get-to-know-who-we-are. Yeah. Maybe we'll start posting about that tomorrow with the release of this episode, so we could have questions in advance. Yes. Yes. We're doing it. We're doing it. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So look out for that post on our social medias. Yeah. Check us out on Twitter and Instagram. We are at a tap on the wrist. And then you can also email us any questions or anything you'd like at tapontheristpodcast at gmail.com. I would say you can ask us anything. We might not answer it. Yeah, Feel free to ask it. Yeah. And <laughs> maybe it'll make it on to the episode. Yeah. Um, but on, on either a somber or happy note, I'm not really sure because we don't know which way it's going to go yet, but... You're listening to this episode potentially on election day of 2020. Or the few days right after. Yep. Yep. Where we still probably won't know. <laughs> so. I, def- I feel like the whole world is watching. Like, this is yeah. not just. I mean, I know the American president holds a lot of power and the whole world usually knows who the American president is. But this year, more than most, the world is watching yeah. this election today. For sure. Um, and I know, you know, as listeners, you might be stressed out. We, as the podcast hosts, are stressed out. I was just talking to Laura about how I haven't been able to sleep in, like, a week. Um, so we're, we're in this together, and hopefully a positive result comes up, and this doesn't age badly. <laughs> I am slightly excited. So if you are listening to this on Tuesday the 3rd, I am working the election polls in New York City. Oh, yeah. Did you get... We haven't talked about this yet. Did you get an assignment yet? So, yes slash no. Okay. Um, I... They've had so many volunteers to be election day workers. Yeah. I'm a standby person, which means in the morning I have to report to, like, this general place okay. and they send us to poll locations that need more workers. Will it be within your borough or could it be in any of the boroughs? No, it has to be in my borough. Okay, so okay, so somewhere in Queens. And do you have to be there what was it, like some five AM or something? No, so standby I get to sleep in a little. I don't show up till nine. Oh wow. Because the, I guess they presu- like they assume that polls will open and then 
you know, like they don't know where mm-hmm. the chaos will be right, right. until a little bit into it. And then yeah. at nine o'clock they'll start sending us to the locations that are that where people didn't show up or that need more hands on deck. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. And you get to sleep in more than normal because you're not, you, you would have to wake up earlier than that for school. Correct. So you really get to sleep in. Yay. Yay. It's going to be a great, fingers crossed day. <laughs> <laughs> but that, we'll, we'll get to hear hopefully about what, what you did next week and hopefully it'll be in a positive light. Yes. <laughs> but yes, I will share that experience because I am excited about it. It's something that I've kind of always wondered about and. It's up there for me with, like, jury duty. It's something that I think we, as Americans, like, should participate in. Right. Because we have the option to. Yeah. Yeah, I always, I remember when I first got jury duty when I was, like, like, right when I was 18 or 19. And I was, like, this sucks. And now that I'm older, I'm, like, I want to be on a jury. I know. I've served on a jury one time and... The defendant had a heart attack on the stand, and we had to, like, they had to call the case. and oh really Like a, a mistrial. And so then, that's my one experience serving on a jury. And I cannot wait to be called again. <laughs> I got called to be on a jury once, and it was an attempted murder case, which is, like, right up no. my alley. <laughs> but, like, we went, we reported for the first day, and they had us sitting in, like, the little jury room. And then they came and told us to go to lunch. And then when we came back to lunch, they were like, we've settled. You guys can leave. Like, I guess. Oh, and no. I was like, no. <laughs> That's a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess with attempted murder. Could you imagine being on, like, one of those high profile cases? Oh, my gosh. No. Because, like, that would take so long. And you might have to be sequestered. Be uh, tense. But, like, imagine being, like, like, to tie it into this season. Like, on the, the jury... The convicted Al Capone of, like, tax fraud. I mean, I'd be terrified to convict Al yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if he sat with yeah, a trial no by jury. I have no, we'll, we'll find, find out. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just, I, I think, so I'm excited yeah. to, to have that experience, and I hope it's positive and that people are not dicks. So yeah. don't be a dick to your poll workers, is what Especially I'm saying. Especially if you live in Queens. <laughs> Especially if you live in Queens. Might be Laura. <laughs> but yeah, I I think it is exciting. Maybe I'll do it one year. I was too scared this year because of corona, so I commend your courage. I mean, everyone will be wearing masks. You have to wear yeah. masks to go in. Um, but, you know, as, as Laura knows, and I'm sure many of our listeners know, I have a lot of anxiety. So <laughs> one day. Um, yes. So I will be there. I'll report back next week. I'm excited to hear. And uh, we got we got a good episode for you guys today because we're like really starting to delve into Capone. I feel like this is like one of the first official episodes where we're really like getting into his crime life. Yes, we talk a lot about his business model and mm-hmm. some crimes he committed. Crimes he committed, yeah, yeah. So we hope you enjoy this week's episode. And submit your questions, because we are going to yes. make an episode, a get-to-know-us episode. So anything you want to know, anything you've been wondering, um, go ahead and ask. Yeah? Enjoy. Okay, so we've mentioned the Four Deuces a couple of times, but as a reminder, it was a saloon, brothel, and gambling joint owned by Johnny Torrio. 
It was located at 2222 South Wabash, uh, hence the four deuces, because there's four twos. I remember the first time I learned that, and I was very excited (laughs) about it. Um, And it was the headquarters of the Chicago outfit in the early 1920s. So I wanted to go into the history of the building and its surrounding area a little bit. Uh, The building that housed the four deuces was part of a block of buildings built right after the Chicago the Great Chicago Fire, around 1880. It was a four-floor building and originally served as apartments to four different families who eventually either moved out or had their apartments foreclosed. The reason that we know they might have been foreclosed is because there were auctions at the apartments around 1883 and 1891. Then in 1901, the building was owned by Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, and it was acquired in a foreclosure auction again at $48,000. $48,000? Yeah, the build, that building and the adjoining properties, so like the block of buildings. But I wonder how much that was. I forgot to do the math. I have and it's and it's 1901. Hold on, I, let me. I, I can pull it up on my phone. But I think your time calculator go, doesn't go back that far, right? Oh right. Hold on. Well, maybe I can find one. Okay. Inflation calculator. 1901. <laughs> oh, I found one. Okay. You said forty-eight thousand. Yeah. Would be almost one point five million. Damn. Well, it was, it, it was like a bank insurance company, so I guess they had the money. But the building of 2222, I don't know if it's 2222 or 2222, whatever, 2222. The four deuces. Yeah. Uh, it was bought by a man named Solomon Friedman, who ran it as a saloon. So the block that the building was on, on Wabash, South Wabash, started to become known as the New Levy, and many saloons popped up in the area. However... In 1903, a midnight closing law was instituted, which I feel like you may have talked about in your your temperance movement Possibly. at some point. Um, and Mayor Harrison sent out a notice to the saloons along Wabash saying that if the law was not followed, their saloons would be shut down and that they and they'd have their liquor licenses revoked. Um, unfortunately for Solomon Friedman, his saloon was one of the ones that was shut down. Of course. Yeah. So as the neighborhood continued to get seedier with all these bars, families began to move out of the area and pop the popularity of sex work, gambling, and drinking began to rise. Some first ward politicians began to take a property in the area, including a man named Saul von Prague, who seems to be the original owner, well, not original owner, but he seemed to have originally owned 2222 South Wabash, uh, before moving his cigar shop to 2226 South Wabash, a couple doors down. Uh, and he also owned some other premises in the area. Our buddy Hinky Dink also seems to have opened some cigar shops and or saloons in the area, or at least have run or control them. Um, and of course, a lot of these locations served as fronts to more illegal activities, again, like gambling and sex work. Um, and because of this, a lot of saloons in the area started to get raided by police. So, for example, in 1917, Van Prague's place was raided and 17 people were arrested for playing crab, craps, <laughs> a.k.a. gambling illegally. Uh, and as vices rose in the area, so did other crimes like robberies, holdups, and killings. One of the like more famous stories of that area uh, 
happened in 1919. Van Prague, who seemed to really just own a lot of property in the area, rented out one of his premises to a man named Marty Guilfoyle. Uh, he, so Guilfoyle ran a cigar shop out of it, and it was the one at 2220. Um, and of course, he had illegal gambling in the back. After a few months of renting the location out, in September, Guilfoyle shot and killed a man named Peter Gentleman, uh, who was known Wait, hold to. Hold on. His last name was Gentleman. His last name was Gentleman. Does he have a nickname? Is that what you're about to tell us? No. Oh, I thought you were. I guess his name was good enough. Like, yeah. <laughs> his name was Peter Gentleman. He didn't really need one. Uh, but he was a slugger, robber, pickpocket, and heavy drinker. He was not a gentleman. No. Uh, and so Gentleman walked into the cigar shop owned by Guilfoyle and threatened him with a gun while he was pl- while Guilfoyle was playing cards with his friends. Uh, Gentleman also began to hit Hill Guilfoyle uh, in, order, in order to avoid confrontation with him. Guilfoyle was just like, fuck this, and ran out of the store with his friends until Gentleman calmed down. He was like, just let this guy calm down. He's acting crazy. Um, and I guess eventually he did, so Guilfoyle went back in to finish his card game with his friends. But Gentleman was not done. He went back to the store and threw a brick through the window, breaking a cigar case. And this time, instead of just waiting for him to calm down, Guilfoyle was pissed and he had enough. So he went and shot Gentleman, who later died in the hospital. I mean, he's not wrong. I know. I mean, I'd be pretty pissed too. (laughs) I don't know that I'd shoot someone, but like, you know, to each their own. Uh, And apparently all this happens because Gentleman was upset over a previous gambling loss. And the My Al Capone Museum noted at some point during all of this, Guilfoyle had asked, why do you want to kill me? And Gentleman replied, because I don't like you. Okay. Straightforward. <laughs> Straightforward. So all of this to say that this is the area where either at the end of 1919 or beginning of 1920, our friend Johnny Torrio decided to center his gang operations. Oh. Yeah. I mean... I mean, it's... it makes sense. It's not... You're not going to center your gang operations and like... The nicest neighborhood. Well, see, that's the what I would do. You're right. You're right. <laughs> Throw them off your scent, Laura. <laughs> this is why I don't lead an organized crime gang, <laughs> or so you think. <laughs> <laughs> and so, as I mentioned in the Lil Capone episode, when Al Capone came to Chicago, he was hired to work at the Four Deuces as a bouncer and a capper or roper. And what that means is he would stand outside the four deuces and he would call for men to come inside to um, meet with some nice girls. Oh. (laughs) He's the bouncer. Yes, but he would also be like the one that was like, you know how when you walk by a restaurant sometimes they're like, oh, do you want to come in and eat our food? Like he was like, do you want to come in and have sex? (laughs) (laughs) Not with me. Um, but soon after his arrival, he began to prove himself as being very efficient and also began to build a really solid reputation. So he was quickly promoted to be manager and enforcer, which I'm guessing means that he like enforced the rules with violence, probably. (laughs) Um, and then in less than two years, Capone became not only the manager, but also a part owner of the four deuces. Just really kept working his way up. Quick learner. Yeah. So at some point, Van Prague, coming back, because he, again, he owns, like, every building, apparently, leased out the building next to the Four Deuces 
2224 South Wabash to Capone. And Capone opened up a mock furniture store as a front for his offices under the alias of Al Brown. Just, just his last name needs to change. So one website does mention that he had business cards that read a Capone antique dealer. So I'm not 100% sure if he like kept the alias the whole time. Um, but the furniture store was all secondhand furniture. Uh, one site even referred to it as secondhand junk. And if someone like called the store trying to actually buy furniture, like they were like, oh, this cute little furniture shop. Capone would just reply, we ain't open today. So, so he didn't sell any real furniture. No, it was just a, it was just a front for his uh, his offices. I guess he, I think Torrio's offices were in the Four Deuces, and I guess Capone was like, I'm just going to set up next door. Nice. Uh, so according to crime fighter or expert Virgil Peterson, this is how the Four Deuces was set up. There was a saloon on the main first floor. Then the second and third floors were the gambling establishments. And then sex work happened up on the fourth floor. So he also noted that a steel barred gate separated the office, I'm guessing Torio's office, from the saloon on the main floor. And there were also rumors that the basement was used to torture and kill Torio and Capone's victims, including rival gangsters and non-payers. Uh, a trap door in the basement was then used to dispose of the bodies. It's just a full, all, all operations, one building kind of place. One, all one-stop shop, one-stop <laughs> shop. Uh, it's actually believed that the Four Deuces is the site of 12 unsolved gangland murders, of which I could not find one. I, like, searched so hard. I was like, what murders happened at the Four Deuces? Like, I, I couldn't find out. If you know, please let us know. We want the murder stories. We do. So, in 1922, an investigative reporter visited the Four Deuces and described that there were two entrances. There was the main entrance, and then there was another entrance through a doorway leading into a corridor, corridor just south of the saloon entrance. Apparently, from the saloon, one would go to the back behind a partition, then slightly to the left, and there was a small staircase that adjoined the main entrance. And that staircase went right up to the rooms where sex work occurred. That's where, that's where you'd go if you if you wanted some sex work. It's like a speakeasy without being a speakeasy. It's like yeah. <laughs> you go in and be like, no, this is a bar. It's fine. It's a bar. But then if you want to gamble or participate in sex work, then you go to like the, the secret, secret entrance. entrance. Yeah. Um. So then I got, I found one more description of uh of the four deuces from the book Capone, the man and the era, uh, by Lawrence Burgreen, which I feel like I may have referenced in another episode or you did. It sounds familiar. Anyway, it says, quote, a saloon occupied the first floor where locally produced whiskey sold for 25 cents and imported whiskey from Canada or rum from the Bahamas sold for 75 cents. Above, on the second floor, where Johnny Torrio, so this is a little different, it says the second floor is where Johnny Torrio's office is and a house bedding parlor, a gambling den, poker, roulette, faro, blackjack, occupied the third floor, and finally, at the top of the stairs, there was, in the words of one journalist, a colorless, no-nonsense sex mill designed for results. Wow. A brief session with a woman at the Four Deuces cost $2, and for $5, the customers could watch a, quote, circus, which is two women going at it with each other, end quote. Wow. Yeah. What year is this, approximately? 
early 1920s. So, like... So, Prohibition is in effect. Oh, yeah. How did they run the saloon? Yeah. Oh, you know, I did read somewhere that they were saying that a lot of saloons at the time were like, we just sell soda or right. soft drinks. Like, we just yeah. sell soft drinks. So, like, it was it's like just a speakeasy a... within a speakeasy. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. so crazy. Yeah. Um, but... I mean, that, that makes sense why they were also selling whiskey from Canada and rum from Bahamas, because that was popular during Well, that's why, it, yeah. Um, but yeah, I also read, I was reading about the the sex work, and they there was another description that was very similar, that like, it was just like a bare bones like room, you just went up there and you just sat and waited for your turn to go into a room with a girl, it like, was nothing fancy, it was not Everly Club status, it was just like... You, you come and you, you get it done. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like I said, I couldn't find information about the 12 unsolved murders that happened at the Four Deuces, but I did find information about a murder that happened a half block away at 2300 South Wabash, and it was committed by our dear friend Al Capone uh, while he was working at the Four Deuces. Ooh, I can't wait. So, there are two stories about the events leading up to the murder, so I'm going to tell you both. The first one is according to a video by Bloodletters and Bad Men, which I've used a few times. They have a lot of really informative videos. Uh, so, on the evening of May 8th of 1924, gangster Joseph W. Howard, a.k.a. Ragtime Joe, was drinking with his friends at Jaime Jacobs Saloon, not to be confused with Jaime Vice, <laughs> different Jaime. Uh, Howard was a burglar and a beer runner, and on this night, he decided to brag about how easy it was to hijack beer trucks, especially those owned by Johnny Torrio. Uh, the video says he quipped that, quote, brass knuckles to the jaw is good enough, and then beer boys will fold up like an old newspaper. Unfortunately for him, known Torrio and Capone associate, who we've spoken about on the show before, Jake Greasy Thumb Guzik was nearby and heard the whole thing. So when Guzik got up to leave, Ragtime Joe followed him to the door and blocked him from leaving. He slapped Guzik across the face, kicked him in the shin. When Ragtime Joe finally let Guzik leave, uh, after laughing about it with his friends, Greasy Thumb headed over to his buddy Al Capone. Capone obviously was not happy, and he headed over to Jaime Jacobs' saloon to confront Ragtime Joe. Joe was seen to have greeted Capone warmly, despite just shit-talking his operation and beating up his friend. Uh, so Capone grabbed Ragtime Joe by the collar and yelled, Why did you kick Jake around, Joe? Ragtime Joe then made the mistake of calling Capone a pimp, uh, a moniker he despised, even though he was. Right. <laughs> uh, and so Capone pulled a pistol out from under his coat and emptied six rounds into Ragtime Joe's head. Okay. In the middle of this bar. He does not fuck around. No. So, the other story about what led up to Ragtime Joe being shot six times in the head, because that they do agree on, uh, is from the My Al Capone Museum, and they say that Ragtime Joe caught Guzik coming out of a gambling house, pushed him into a doorway, and stuck him up for $1,500. Guzik tried to talk Howard out of the holdup, offering him a job, but Ragtime Joe said that he wouldn't work for a pimp like Al Brown, which I just said was a, one of Capone's alias, aliases. Uh, and then the site claims that Guzik isn't the one that told Capone about the run-in. Someone else did. Uh, but it all ultimately resulted in the confrontation at Jaime Jacobs' saloon and 
Ragtenjo getting shot six times in the head. So after the shooting, Capone just calmly walked out of the bar, like he didn't have care in the world, despite the fact that there were at least three witnesses, including the saloon owner, Jaime Jacob. So all three witnesses confirmed to the police that the shooter was Capone, and the next day, for the first time, the Chicago Tribune published a photo of Al Capone. Right after the murder, police immediately went to the Four Deuces and then to Capone's home on Prairie Avenue to find him, but obviously they did not succeed. Capone had gone on the lam, so they think he was likely hiding in Cicero uh, for about a month, and then a month later, he strolled into the police station and said, I heard the police are looking for me. What for? <laughs> uh, he was interrogated by a young assistant state's attorney named William McSwiggin, uh, who I'm sure by total coincidence was gunned down by Capone's henchmen two years later. Uh, <laughs> it's so funny because I'm going to tell a story that involves McSwiggin. Really? And Guzik. Oh, wow. So, there's like, so much overlap. There's so much overlap. So Capone claimed to McSwiggin that he was a respectable businessman running a secondhand furniture store, uh, that he didn't really know Johnny Torrio, why, <laughs> and that he was out of town the day the murder happened. So as the investigation, McSwiggin didn't give up though, based on this, he, he continued the investigation. However, the witnesses got, I guess, forgetful about what happened. Mm. Uh, one witness actually left Chicago completely Another said that it was actually dark and they couldn't really see the identity of the killer. Right, I mean, it happens. Like, it could be Capone, but it could not be. Yeah. Uh, and then Jaime Jacob says that he was actually at the other end of the bar and didn't really see what happened. So, despite the fact that at first there were confirmed sightings of Capone shooting him, the coroner's jury ended up saying that Joseph Howard, also known as Ragtime Joe, came to his death at the hand or hands of one or more unknown white males. Wrong. So wrong. 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 So sadly, uh, in around 1923-1924, after William E. Dever was elected as mayor, the four deuces suffered from a lot of raids. Um, and unlike under the corrupt mayor we all know, Big Bill Thompson, the higher-ups could no longer be brought off, and so Torrio and Capone decided to move their operations to Cicero. Uh, but during the time Capone did continue to use the alias Al Brown uh, and his furniture store to run the Four Deuces for a time, even after they moved, uh, and they noted, the website I read noted that he would park his Cadillac across the street. So fancy, that mm -hmm. Capone. So in later years, the Four Deuces became a restaurant in about 1930 before going back to its roots as an apartment building. And I read a weird story about a woman who died by suicide. She like killed herself in the bathtub, poured, I mean, before she, before she died, she poured gasoline on herself and lit herself on fire. It was, it was, I was like, what? It seemed unnecessary to include, but I had to bring it up because it was, just so weird. So weird. Yeah. Um, I bet you if it still stood, it'd be haunted as fuck. But unfortunately, the building was demolished in 1966. Uh, however, the phone booth from the building was preserved before the demolition. And it now lives at the Mob Museum in Las Vegas, which 
we have gone to, and I was like, oh, did we see it? We took pictures in it. We did? Yes. Oh my gosh. I don't remember. I <laughs> And also a New York architectural collector named Ivan Karp removed an architectural mask from the front of 2222 South Wabash while he was in Chicago in about 1964. Uh, and this is from 2009, so I'm not 100% sure if it's still there. But it says that he bought the mask back to New York and that it lives in the garden of the Brooklyn Museum, which oh. is like we could we could go see that. Um, that I don't have pictures of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that is the story of the four deuces. The headquarters. The headquarters. Torio and Capone. Yeah, for the four majority. time. Mostly while they, the two of them work together. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So Vanessa told us all about the headquarters. The right. four deuces. And I am going to do kind of a, a dive into how the Torio Capone business model worked how they made all their money mm -hmm. how all of these because it wasn't just like one brothel that they ran the four deuces right so what led to them killing people at the right places. so the very beginning of my story is a little bit of an overlap of what vanessa said but not too much it just kind of goes into like the very beginning of capone coming to chicago right getting involved okay so, we all know that he, Capone, was, you know, a thug and a bookkeeper when he was in New York, and he brings all of that with him when he comes to New York, along with his... When he comes to Chicago? Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Okay. Um, so, as Vanessa mentioned, Torrio recognizes Capone's skills and quickly promotes him from bouncer to partner within like a very short amount of time. Mm -hmm. But the big difference between Torrio and Capone is Torrio liked to keep a low profile. Capone, much less of a low profile. He was much more fancy and wanted to show off his wealth and kind of, you know... Shoot people in bars. Shoot people in bars. <laughs> um, and he developed a reputation as like a drinker and they described it as a rabble rouser. But, Rabble rouser. Yes. Um, so I found an article that said his first interaction with Chicago police, um, and you mentioned the first time they posted his picture. This mm -hmm. is before that. So yeah. So this is pretty early into his time in Chicago. He's mm -hmm. still, like, bouncer level. The four deuces is what I noted. But he goes out for an evening of drinking, mm -hmm. and on his way home, he's driving one of Torrio's cars, okay. and he hits a parked taxi cab while drunk. And the police are called, he is arrested, and they did print an article about it in the Chicago Tribune. Mm -hmm. However, at this point, Capone is basically a nobody, yeah. right? He's... He's not Torio. This also seems very mild in comparison to his future. <laughs> right. But so I have the actual article that oh, nice. I'm showing Vanessa. Um, and the headline even gets his name wrong. They call him Capone. Capone? C-A-P-O-N-I. And it's Capone waves gun after crash faces three charges. My little Capone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so basically what happens is, you know, the, the police come they interview him he is drunk they arrest him he's facing three charges however 
Torio being Torio, mm-hmm. takes care of it, right? Yeah, like, of course. Daddy comes in and takes <laughs> care of it. Um, so his name is cleared, the charges are dropped, and that's all due to Torio's connection with the city government. Um, you know, he's paying off cops by the dozen. He is got the, you know, Big Bill Thompson in his pocket. Uh, and Capone sees those kind of relationships and, like, is super envious of Torrio. He wants that. And as Vanessa said, you know, he worked really hard to make his way up the pyramid to become Torrio's right-hand guy. Right. Which he does. So as Capone rises up, you know, the pyramid, if you will, he forms his own connections in the government and does also form a relationship with Big Bill Thompson, the mayor. Um, We covered Thompson's story back in, like, episode two of this season. So Mm -hmm. if you want to know about his corruption and his scandals, definitely make sure you listen to that. But what happens is in 1923, Bill Thompson is forced to withdraw from the mayoral election um, because of... And I cover this at the very end of that story... But, like, he, he doesn't run for re-election in 1923. Right. And so, William Dever runs for mayor and wins. Mm-hmm. And you briefly mentioned it, but William Dever, while he is opposed to prohibition and is known to be a drinker, mm-hmm. he also is a moral politician. Right. And so, he is not bought off by Torrio and Capone Which causes a big issue for the Chicago outfit in 1923. Mm -hmm. They're used to kind of... Prohibition's been in effect now for a couple years. Big Bill was very on board with all of their names. And now William Dever is like, yeah, I like alcohol, but I like the law more. Yeah. Um, So it says that it was his personal philosophy that disregarding laws would foster an erosion in the regard of other laws... So while he knew bootleggers had been making under-the-table payments to public officials and law enforcement and corrupting all of Chicago's government, which is most likely the only reason he was even elected mayor Mm -hmm. was because of all of the corruption happening, um, he still wasn't going to succumb to all of that. Right. So an incident takes place in September of 1923. It's a shootout. At the Southside Cafe between two rival groups of rum runners mm-hmm. um, that results in the killing of one man and followed a week later, the same two small gangs have another shootout in which two people die. William Dever uses these small events as like the catalyst to really crack down on bootlegging and organized crime in Chicago, which is a... A definite hit to the Torrio Capone Capone, <laughs> Capone uh, Torrio Capone outfit, um, and so it's because of this uh, that they start to think of kind of a plan B. What are they going to do? So Dever launches this campaign to crack down on bootlegging. They label it the Great Beer Wars, um, and by the end of the year. Dever is so successful that the media often nickname him Decent Dever. And, like, we're trying to call Chicago the driest city 
even though it 100% was not. Also, shout out to you finally saying the beer wars. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) Um, But Dever does a lot of damage. Um, We know bootlegging doesn't end in 1923, 1924, but we do see a giant shift in operations in the city of Chicago because of William Dever. Right. What happens is that Torrio and Capone move all of their business, the majority of their business, to Cicero. Right. Which you did mention in your story, but I do want to talk about Cicero a little bit. What happens, based on my research, is that Torrio kind of stays in Chicago stays like there's offices in Chicago. He's he's kind of headquartered in Chicago. Right. And he sends his right-hand man, his good buddy, mm-hmm. Mr. Al Capone out to Cicero to set up operations in Cicero. Right. Um so Cicero at the time is a little bit west of Chicago. Um and it had become a manufacturing and railroad town in the 1880s. And then in 1904, Western Electric opened a giant manufacturing building mm-hmm. and had like 20,000 employees. So it quickly grew to a pretty big suburb outside of Chicago. Yeah. So when they moved there in the early 1920s, it's a it's a developed small city. Right. Just west of Chicago. And Capone had to go there. They chose Cicero because of the manufacturing background. There were large factories they could set up for bootlegging operations. Mm-hmm. It was also outside of Chicago city limits, so right. Dever couldn't enforce his anti-prohibition laws. Yes. But Capone kind of had to start over a little bit. He mm-hmm. had to infiltrate the government of Cicero um, and gain control in order to open up these operations in Cicero. So he brings with him two people he trusts very well, his brothers Frank and Ralph. Bottles! Bottles. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Basically how it, how they kind of split up the business, um, Frank took charge of kind of infiltrating the government offices. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ralph opened brothels in Cicero, and Al kind of ran the gambling joints. Okay. Um, but together, you know, they they all worked together to infiltrate Cicero. Right. So, <laughs> a lot of the research focuses on the government of Cicero, and this is really how Capone and Torrio were successful in any of their operations is by controlling the government and the police. Right. Getting them to turn a blind eye to all of the illegal things that they were doing. So when they get to Cicero, they immediately know they need to replace the mayor. Right. So in April of 1924, there's an election happening for mayor. There's a man named Joseph Klena who was already on the Chicago Outfit payroll, mm-hmm. and he happened to be the city manager in Cicero. So it was an easy choice to have him run for mayor. He was already in their pocket. Mm-hmm. He was known by the city, the, the town of Cicero. Yeah. So that was Al Capone's choice for mayor. And by 1924, Al Capone is very much in this uh, what Al Capone wants, Al Capone gets mindset. So... There were no rules 
when it came to running and rigging the 1924 election for Cicero mayor. Some might say that's still true. Some might say. (laughs) Um, I'm going to explain to you the amount of corruption that happened in this election to get this man elected mayor of Cicero. Okay. There's many parts to it. I feel like it's going to give me anxiety. Yeah. Um, Okay, so one part is they threatened news media Mm -hmm. to only report on the positives of Clena. Okay, so Clena was the only candidate that could be promoted in the news media. And if a news reporter were found trying to report about the other candidate, um, they would disappear, they'd be beat up, they would, you know, things would happen to them. They had to stop spreading that fake news. Yeah, fake news. And then the two things I found the the most atrocious okay. would be on the day of election day, which was, it's April of 1924, I don't know that I noted the exact date, um, Capone's gang members went around and kidnapped poll workers so that there would be, like, suppression and, like, yeah. like difficult running all of the polls that day Damn. and they just like kidnapped them and held them for the day and then at, like the end of the day would just like throw them out of moving vehicles oh somewhere in Cicero and I was like OMG this I like this is crazy yeah and then another part was that and specifically these are Capone's two brothers um Frank and Bottles they were on election day would get in their car and they would drive up and down the roads in front of the polling places like bullying voters like who are you voting for and if the person refused to answer or gave the wrong answer they would just beat them up so that they couldn't vote it's terrifying so and this was i mean all in an attempt to get clena elected mayor in cicero so that they could really start their operations out there right So, lots of crazy things happening in Cicero. Yeah. So, by the afternoon of Election Day, election officials appealed for help. And the Cook County judge, who was actually in Chicago, um, sent 70 Chicago police officers into Cicero to, like, stop all of this voter suppression on Election Day. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's at one of the polling places that an undercover group of Chicago police officers comes across the Capone brothers who are instigating violence. Right. They try... I, you know, The stories are kind of convoluted, whether they tried to stop them verbally first or whether gunfire just opened. But gunfire rang out. Um, some say Frank Capone shot first, but he missed. However, the Chicago PD did not miss, and Frank Capone was shot and killed that day. R.I.P. Frank. R.I.P. Frank. Um, shouldn't have. You shouldn't have bullied voters. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, but so obviously Al Capone is upset that his brother is killed. However, they are victorious in the election, mm-hmm. and Clena does become the mayor of Cicero. Mm-hmm. And in turn, Cicero basically becomes Capone's town. Yes. Uh, very quickly, uh, Clena wins, and it is a victory for Torrio and Capone. 
and they start taking over immediately. So how the business model works is the Chicago outfit, they didn't necessarily open every single brothel or saloon of their own. Mm -hmm. They did have some that they owned on their, you know, that they ran. Right. But pretty much they would go into an existing saloon Uh and demand money for protection. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they were getting a cut of every saloon's profits for, quote unquote, protection (laughs) by the outfit. Um... And they also, like, if a saloon owner refused, again, they disappeared, their bones were broken, their family was harmed. Mm -hmm. Capone was very violent. Yeah. I mean, Torrio obviously was also violent or condoned the violence, Mm -hmm. but there's very few stories of Torrio participating in it. He just, he let Capone enforce it. It's kind of why he had people like Capone. Um, and then, obviously, there are hundreds of men under Capone doing Capone's work. Um, you know, right. it's not just Capone doing it, and it's not just him and his brothers. There are different levels to the outfit, mm-hmm. and everyone had a job, and right. you had zones, and you had saloons you were in charge of. But this was how it all worked as a giant pyramid, with Torrio and Capone sitting on top, mm-hmm. and all of their, like, henchmen underneath them. But when it came to the businesses that were run, it's it's not, you know, five bars. It's not ten brothels. It's in the thousands. Yeah. And in some things I read, it was like 10,000 businesses were run by the Chicago outfit in wow. the height of Prohibition. Wow. Um, and it's estimated that they made... Um, I'm jumping ahead a little bit just because I got it... It's estimated they made $60 million a year at some point during the 1920s using this model of just, like, going in. But I do want to... I want to talk a little bit more about their plan. So, the bootlegging aspect of it, because that's what they're... I think before we started any of this research, that's kind of what I always thought was that the business model was the illegal alcohol... But really, it's because they ran a monopoly on all aspects of prohibition at the time. Like, they had the illegal alcohol, Mm -hmm. and they got it multiple ways. Like, as you mentioned, there was whiskey from Canada that Mm -hmm. came in illegally. Mm -hmm. There was rum running from the Caribbean islands. And they had, you know, Chicago is a little bit, it's not landlocked because of the Great Lakes, but you're not getting like bohemian rum to chicago directly right. so there was entire illicit like like roadways like through mm-hmm. new york and through pennsylvania and they would you know send their trucks so like the outfit owned the transportation companies and they mm-hmm. would drive and get the illegal rum and bring it back and then they would disperse it to the speakeasies that they had a cut of mm-hmm. or the brothels that they had a cut of um and they owned like ev- a part of every aspect of that, which is how they made so much money right. and how they were able to control it for so long because no one was going to interfere because Capone was known to be so violent. Right. So it's really fascinating when you look at like how much of a, nop- a monopoly they had on this 
business model at the time. Right. Um, and, like, then there are also some stories of, like, in 1919, right at the beginning of Prohibition, Torio, and this is really pre-Capone, this is right when Torio was getting this idea, like, hey, alcohol might be the way to go. Right. Like, he bought a brewery. Right. And he just renamed it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was called the Manhattan Brewery. It was in Chicago. But, uh, and he renamed it to Fort Dearborn Products, but it still maintained through all of Prohibition, it was a brewery. Yeah. And it was one of the largest manufacturers of alcohol during Prohibition. Mm-hmm. And it sat right in Chicago in the same building that it had been in pre-Prohibition, just under a different name. And that's, like, one of the methods in which they produced all this alcohol. Yeah. So it's just mind-blowing that the government, like, let this happen. Yeah. And, like, they were so afraid of Capone and Torrio that, like, no one would stop them. Well, until one Until day. they did. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then another thing that I, I thought was pretty interesting is how do they keep track of all of their businesses, right? right. If you're running 10,000 brothels and speakeasies and gambling fronts, you know, how do you keep track of all the paperwork? And so, obviously, as Vanessa said... The Four Deuces is their biggest headquarters um, for a very long time, and they had an elaborate system happening there. But there is a time when the Four Deuces... Four Deuces? <laughs> the Four Deuces. I mean, they were douches. But the Four Deuces gets shut down, um, and there are conflicting stories about where exactly the headquarters are located, but in my research, I found that they rented... Um, an office in a shopping center um, in Cicero and they turned like the front of it into a doctor's office and in the back it literally just held file cabinet after file cabinet of all of their um, business records Mm -hmm. and uh, so like if you looked inside a peek inside Dr. Ryan's office as the dog that's the name of the doctor that was on the door um, it looked like an ordinary waiting room furnished with, you know, furniture and vials of medicine. And then the next room had file cabinets and file cabinets. Um, and at the time, the chief accountant, so I'm going to recount this one story again. This is 1924. Uh, the chief accountant was our good friend, Jake Greasy Thumb Gusick. Um, he had ledgers that had all of the secrets of the business in mm-hmm. this office. And in 1924, the police raided the office. And this would be the downfall of the Chicago outfit. Like, if they found all of these business ledgers... Yeah, they would have not... It it should have been the downfall of Capone and Torrio in 1924. But we know it's not, so let me tell you how they got away with it. Um, So, the police, and this is led by our friend Mick Swiggin goes into this doctor's office they find ledgers showing major beer customers mm-hmm. locations of all speakeasies under Torrio Capone control details of the gang's liquor supply chain from Canada and the Caribbean corporate control documents for breweries owned and operated tea charts for all of the brothels that they owned and ran and embarrassingly they also found a list of the police officers and federal agents that were receiving hush money 
Mm. All of this was found by the Chicago police in 1924. And Mayor Dever had a press conference and said, we've got the goods. Like, they were bringing Tori Capone down. Um, And so on the cusp of an indictment, Capone's men were working behind the scenes furiously to figure out a solution to the problem. How do we stop all of this from tumbling down? Um, And what they did is they found a guy by the name... (laughs) A guy. (laughs) Of Judge Howard Hayes. Okay. So Judge Howard Hayes was supposed to be the judge in the indictment process. So another payoff saves the day for the Chicago outfit. Shortly after the raid of the doctor's office, Judge Howard Hayes summons all of the seized records to his courtroom. And the next day, without notifying the prosecution, um... Or Mayor Dever or McSwiggin, anyone, he returns all of the documents to Capone's attorneys. And he says that the police did not have a search warrant for accounting records. They only had a search warrant for illegal alcohol, which they did not find in the doctor's office. So convenient. And all of the charges were dismissed against Capone and Torrio and the outfit. McSwiggin must have been pissed. Oh, I can you imagine? <laughs> Man. Um, and then there are just some other stories that I, as I was researching the small facts, like the way that Capone and Torrio worked, they did things like pave full roads to make the travel of all of their bootleg alcohol smoother and faster so there'd be less breakage so they can trucks mm-hmm. could move faster so there'd be less hijacking of their trucks yep so part of the reason the community also supported them a they wanted the alcohol right we've right. talked at length about how the majority of voters were against prohibition mm-hmm. and b Torio put a lot into communities they had so much money they were funding you know, community sports programs and they Mm -hmm. were paving roads and they were opening, like, so yes, they were doing terrible things and murdering lots of people. They also were putting money back into these communities that were hiding their headquarters, um, which is why a lot of people let all of these organized crimes happen. Right. Um, It's also noted Capone's Cadillac that you mentioned was painted the same green and black pattern of the police cars at the time. He, he even had a siren and searchlight mounted on the roof of his Cadillac so that he looked like an officer when he was driving. Wow. And people wouldn't try and attack his car. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is noted that his, at some point, because this is like the early 1920s, mm-hmm. you know, we are getting to a point where eventually Capone will take over the outfit. Right. Um, and it's later on he ha- ends up having to make his Cadillac bulletproof. Um, mm-hmm. And it ends up, like, just historical knowledge. It goes on to become a presidential car because it was, like, one of the safest cars in America. Oh, wow. I, I feel like I had heard something about that. I mean, there are yeah. so many, like, little facts about Capone that I I know. Heard. There's yeah. so many. But, like, his car... He, I mean, he spent so much money on his Cadillac. Yeah. But, like, one way during the, like, early times that he, like, got away with a lot of stuff is he just 
camouflage it to look like a police car. Smart. Um, and it was noted that at the there were holes installed at the bottom of the windows, so they didn't even have to roll down the windows to shoot rifles out. They could just right through the holes of the windows to shoot people in drive-by shootings. Wow. I mean, which just is... stick their Tommy guns. Yeah. Right <laughs> and that's more more the kind of violence we're going to get into in later years. Yeah. When the, the gang is way more violent in the later 20s than it is in the early 20s, believe it or not. Um, but I do have a quote from Capone. All I do is supply a public demand. Somebody had to throw liquor on that thirst. Why not me? <laughs> That was, like, his motto. Like, sure, Capone. <laughs> should put that on a poster. So it's in the mid-1920s. The outfit is at the top of their gang. They're running Chicago. They're running Cicero. They are doing all of this business. They've got brothels, gambling halls, jazz speakeasies. clubs, speakeasies. I mean, they are at the top of their gang in the middle of the 1920s. But they're not doing it all alone. They It isn't just Capone and Torrio. They're, they had alliances they had lots of help mm-hmm. from some smaller gangs um which is where we're gonna stop for this week because next week we're gonna tell you all about their alliances yes oh and uh i guess we should give our sources yes so i used a couple different sources this week i but i think i've i've used them before so mm-hmm. i'm gonna just Same. mention them uh chicago crime scenes.blogspot.com mm-hmm. I can't tell you what a wealth of information that blog is. I wonder why they stopped. I know. Because it, it really is. Um, AlcaponeMuseum.com mm-hmm. I also used. Mm-hmm. And then ChicagoGangHistory.com uh, was informative too. Nice. I also used my Al Capone Museum and the Chicago Crime Scenes Project. Um, but in addition to that, I used, I don't know if it's Domu.com, D-O-M-U. Uh, they had history, a history in the South Loop section. Uh, I also used an article from KTNV.com called Mob Museum Gets Phone Booth from Al Capone HQ in Chicago. And lastly, the video that I mentioned by Blood, Blood Letters and Bad Men called Al Capone and the Murder of Ragtime Joe Howard. Nice. Yeah. I feel like this is like one of those episodes where we like actually talked about the things people think Al Capone did. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like, we finally get into the juicy stuff. Yeah. In the next couple episodes, we're going to get into more of the juicy details. Some of their alliances, uh-huh. some of their enemy gangs. Besides the Northside Gang. Besides the Northside Gang. Um, so, stick with us. Yeah. We're, we're, we promise we're getting to the good stuff. Although I feel like everything's been interesting. For but, sure. But this is like the meat and potatoes of Al Capone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cheers. Cheers.